Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back. This is Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. In this week's episode, Riley and I are going to talk about good and evil. Timeless. Uh, these, this is the big question. It's the uh, it's the thing we investigate most when we go into the temple. It's probably the thing that most religions deal with on a most philosophical level and and really wrestle with is trying to figure out good and evil. Not even necessarily the differentiation, but just what are they? What are they? You know, it's interesting to note, it, it popped into my head that there's no actual word for evil in the Qur'an. They, the, the Qur'an deals with what is known and what is not known, as in, this is what we do, this is not what we do, this is not how we do things, this is how we do things. And so going back, you know, and even going back farther, there's the idea of nomos, right? In Greek, the idea that there are certain rules that are unwritten, that these are the things that we agree on, that this is our culture, that this is what we do, and that's not what we do. This is how we do things. That's not how we do things. It's the same idea. So is that the same as saying that evil, since it doesn't have a word for it, would almost be defined by the its opposite? Essentially saying it's the absence of good that equals the evil? Because that's a common way that people think about evil. Well, at least in the in the Quran with the idea of what is known and what is not known, it's what is not known, meaning that's not how we do things here. Okay. So acting against the the nature of things. I, you know, I know I'm you trying to force a definition here, but I guess what I'm getting at is you brought this up, this point that it, there isn't a yeah. word for it, and it's curious as to why that might be. Yeah, I don't know about the, against the nature of things. Um, I think with the Quran, it's it's showing us clearly, and I think again in Nomos, it's the same idea in ancient Greek culture. You're seeing this idea that that good and evil are determined by our society. Do you see what I mean? So there's yeah. not necessarily the kind of objective reality to this that most people think that there is, at least not in this way of thinking. And we can go into this further and see how much that's true for us, well, whether we it, realize it or not. It brings up this idea that we are constantly uh, recycling in LDS theology about the garden myth and where Adam and Eve didn't have any kind of experience of good or evil. So essentially, they didn't really have a word for either, even though we don't experience it that way when we go to the temple. Really, if there was nothing to define one in opposition to the other, they didn't exist in their minds. It was only once we had that division that these things begin to exist by themselves as, as you know, either virtue or the, or the lack thereof. 
I think you've said a mouthful, Riley, because it's it's only in that that distinction between good and evil, right? That's something that occurs with the fall. So yes, they do, they're not aware of that in their pre-fallen state. And that is what the fall is, is to come to see that kind of duality. And so then the question is, is that vision wrong? Is well, it good, bad, right, wrong? Yeah, I would say that what what is being described in pre-fall garden drama is not the lack of good and evil, but the lack of perception of good and evil. Because God, after each day of creation, said, it is good. And so good existed, at least good. And if you believe Lehi that, you know, there must be, needs be an opposition in all things, then evil also existed. But it was Adam and Eve's lack of perception of their existence that we are experiencing in the creation drama story when we go to the temple, for instance, or read it in the scriptures. Maybe. I'm Maybe. not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, here, here's why. Let me, let me push back a little. So it's good. Well, what is God saying is good? A lot of what he's saying is good is we think of nowadays as not good. It's interesting because from the very beginning, things are really earthy. What's good? I mean, the story of Genesis is it's earth, you know, it's soil, it's dirt, right? It's, um, it's blood, it's sex. Do you see what I mean? There's a, it's, a lot of this is really earthy and it's really, I don't know, it gets into stuff that we think of as earthly and therefore evil, or not good, or bad, or something like that. And at the same time, when he says this is good, it seems like he, well, this is what I was saying, right? He's saying that all of this is good, and nothing is mentioned as bad. So everything that is created is good, and nothing is mentioned as bad. Whether or not Adam and Eve could perceive it, nothing is mentioned as bad. So is Lehi suffering from the same delusion of opposition that that's, Lucifer tells Eve is the only way of seeing things. Like, there is no other way. When Lehi says there must needs be opposition in all things, is he suffering from the same delusion of, of dissociation between all things? Like, Yeah, is it a delusion? Maybe we, we, we understand the, the fall is necessary, right? So if the fall is necessary, then there must needs be this opposition in all things. And yet the fall is this is beginning to see things in terms of duality. And that's not reality. That's not ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is unity. The Father and I are one. And and we're to be one with, with Jesus and with the Father. And and so how do we get back into unity? And did we need to come out of it? Because why, if we, what's the point of coming out of it if the point is to go back into it? I think that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so what that's pointing to for me is attaining to a certain level of perception. And it's the perception that leads you back to where you came from. Um, with, not with this, you know, this naive uh, innocence, but with with the knowledge that you attain from seeing the duality, but wanting them to be back into unity. Yeah, you're talking about choice, right? We're, we're at choice now. It's so you, you come out of unity into duality, 
And then through agency, you get to choose to enter back into unity. And the, the garden is there. The tree of life is there waiting for it, us to eat from it, guarded by the cherubim and the flaming sword, not to stop us from eating from the fruit, but to stop us from eating from the fruit unprepared. You know, when I always say that the, those threshold guardians, because the cherubim and flaming sword, their threshold guardians, are there not to stop us from entering in the garden and partaking of the fruit, but just to make sure we check our duality at the door, at that threshold. Right, because it's God that says, lest they eat and live forever in their sin. So it's referring to a specific sin, and that sin is the sin of duality, which Eve and Adam introduced into the world through partaking of this tree of duality, of knowledge of good and evil. And so, you know, God says at that point, if they partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then they go straight to the tree of life, they live forever in their sin because they haven't yet learned or desired the the conjunction, bringing those and, things and chosen together. It. Right, by their own free will and choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the whole thing of entering back into unity is this sacred marriage right this and and this is why we talk about the the eternal marriage we talk about temple marriage as the crowning uh, ordinance right so the whole idea of this eternal marriage is to is this marriage symbolically speaking of heaven and earth it's a conjunction of opposites of male and female archetypally speaking right archetypally speaking male and female of heaven and earth of of opposites right the mystery of conjunction what's the word for that again right the hierogamy the hierogamy the sacred marriage the conjunctio mysterium conjunctionis the mystery of conjunction yeah conjunction yeah. of opposites yeah so let's back up um chris because we i think we dove right into something that you and i could talk about for hours but let's let's back up into this uh discussion about good and evil a little bit there's a long history to this, and we're not the first ones to have it, obviously. And we don't anticipate solving any problems in this one hour episode of Latter day Contemplation in our uh, offices. So we're not here to try to solve it, but what are we here to do? We're here to try to bring more thought, more clarity to this question so that people can wrestle with this themselves, right? You know, I've learned in in my training as a philosopher that asking good questions is where it's at. Let's not get ahead of ourselves in looking for answers when we haven't learned to ask really good questions yet. And lots of really good questions have been asked. Yeah, exactly. I mean, philosophers have spent hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, through the ages trying to figure out these questions. So the questions are there, and we can ask some of those. And arrive at some of those same conclusions. I've found that the the answers that the philosophers come up with aren't always true. They're not always the best way to think about it, but their their questions are always valuable. Even if you don't agree with their answers, the questions that they lend are really valuable. Right. So a lot of people will start the discussion of good and evil with... Uh, almost a a challenge to the existence of God. Like how can God exist when there's this stuff that happens in the world, all this evil and suffering and all this stuff, like how can God exist? So it's a challenge to the existence of God. The classical problem of evil, I think first articulated by 
Epicurus, who says if if God can't do anything about it, he's impotent. And if he won't do anything about it, he's malevolent. And why then call him God? Yeah, and Augustine uses similar language, and he, he refers to omnipotence and omnibenevolence and omnipresence and omnipotence. Uh, well, I already said omnipotent, but nevertheless, using some of those same big words that help us to understand this this all-powerful deity. And if he is truly all-powerful, then, you know, it's an if-then statement. There's always this mathematical equation that's set up, and that's what creates the problem, is we're trying to we're trying to take something inherently spiritual and personal and turn it in, into an equation. The classic formulation of this problem in, in philosophy of, of religion is this question, can God make a rock so big even he can't lift it? <laughs> and, these, and these are just nonsensical questions, right? But you see where they come from. The confusion comes from the way we approach these questions. And so for us as, as Latter-day Saints, a theodicy, which is an answer to this problem of evil, as we've called it, the problem of evil, when you answer it, we call that a theodicy, necessarily invokes our free agency. Right? Our free agency comes into the conversation because if God is all-powerful, then we have no agency. And if we have agency, then in some sense, God is not all-powerful, and yet we don't have to get into false dichotomies. Listen, we won't be able to get back into the garden with them, that's for sure. That's some of the forced duality we started out the episode with that we're trying to get away from. But nevertheless, it frames the discussion and the debate around good and evil for thousands of years. And so I think it's profitable to at least dip our toes in that and frame some of that so people understand the issues. And I think from a Christian perspective, I mean, obviously you could go back to the Greeks too. They've had this this debate as well, the pseudo-Dionysus Plotinus, you know, um, Plato has got the good and evil dichotomy. They've all had this discussion as well. But from a Christian perspective, maybe it begins uh, with Augustine in terms of philosophy, right? For for Christians, yeah. I mean, he's, you know, some people think of Plotinus as a lapsed Christian. But I think, you know, once we get into Augustine, we're on solid Christian ground in terms of philosopher theologians, right? And And he's going to be a Platonist, of course maybe even a Neoplatonist. Yeah, but you know, backing up, actually thinking about the pre-Socratics, it's interesting to look all the way back to Parmenides and Empedocles because they, they, it's interesting how they actually deal with this question of the, I'm going to say the mind game that it is to talk about good and evil as though they're opposites. They had some unique insight. But I'll just I'll just leave that at that. That there's that's something you can look into is Parmenides and Empedocles and their po- and the fragments of their poems that come down to us from before Socrates. Well, and I, I mean I I should also preface it by saying in the scriptures this debate is had. I mean I mentioned Lehi earlier and he's he's framing a theodicy um, that's it's very similar to one that has was even popularized in the 20th century with with John Hick that. Um, that free will plays a huge part in this and that it doesn't limit God's um, God's existence because we don't believe in in determinism. Like, 
you know, or, or for, uh, not predestination, I guess, is, is maybe the better word. And so while it's not necessarily a limit on God, it's more of a respect to free will. But that's jumping ahead. So, you know, this is the, the idea of original sin kind of came out of the Augustinian debate about good and evil because he was thinking in terms of the big omnis, right? The uh, omnipotent, omniscient, all that stuff. And he's saying if you have a perfect God who knows everything and is all-powerful, why would he create man that does evil if he's if he's powerful enough to to change that to to make god not evil or make people not evil why would he why would he create people who have the potential for evil and his exit out of that conundrum was this idea of original sin where it was it's on us it's not on god it's on us that we took this agency that we were endowed with and we we used it to act poorly and so the the sin is on us god created everything perfect and we screwed it up that's not very satisfying is it god didn't see that one coming <laughs> yeah exactly so i mean it still calls into question his omniscience right and his omnipotence because if he creates and his omnipotence right he didn't see it coming he didn't so, do anything about it to right. to prevent it yeah so that is then challenged and you get guys like Immanuel Kant who says, you know, take God out of it. Let's try to have a secular discussion about good and evil. And, and can we arrive at something out of pure reason that helps us understand these topics better? And he came up with this categorical imperative, which ironically for being a secular solution to the problem is incorporated into a lot of the Christian ethic, in especially the Protestant Christian ethic. We have this hymn that everyone's familiar with that says, do what is right, let the consequence follow. That's the categorical imperative, isn't it? That you don't worry about outcomes and you just do the right thing no matter what and let the outcomes just, let, just follow, let the, chips, let the consequence follow. Let the chips fall where they may. Right. Yeah, and there's, you know, that doesn't do much for, you know, justifying God, which is what theodicy means in the Greek, to justify God. But it uh, it does help us to at least take another step in this debate, have understanding. Riley, one of my favorite stories comes to my mind, and that's from that's the story of Arjuna and Krishna from the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna is a warrior, and he's faced with this on a battlefield, which is actually meant to symbolize this internal battlefield in, in our own hearts, right in the silent chambers of our soul, where we fight out those daily battles, and he is shrinking from his duty to fight because the people he's fighting are his family and he loves and admires and respects them and his charioteer who's krishna who's an an avatar of vishnu which means he's god incarnate tells him look it's not up to you whether people live or die that's up to me that's they're already dead you just do your duty and fight and so he tells him to fight without desire for victory and without fear for death. So it's not the consequences that he's fighting for, whether to be a victor or whether to avoid dying, but for the sake of doing his duty, because that's his job as a warrior is to fight. Yeah, and then it, it begs the question, like who gets to determine what the duty is and and what's the right thing to do? Um, yeah, and that's I think that's part of the problem with, with Kant is you just don't, 
you don't know what the right thing to do is unless someone tells you, and then you're relying on someone else's subjective opinion of what right is. Um, well, Kant's, you can go back to nature and Kant's categorical imperative says that we should act in such a way that we can will our action as a universal maxim, right? So act in such a way that you could say everyone should act this way. It's where we get our question. What would happen if everybody did this? You know, what would happen if everybody acted this way? That's Kant. Yeah, so you're extrapolating to the many from the few or the one and saying, you know, if it's good for the gander, then it's good enough for the, the goose, right? Something like that, yeah. It's it's saying, if would it work for everybody to do this? I think an example is helpful. So lying turns out to only work in a society of truth tellers. Right, it's only because people are telling the truth and people are counting on people telling the truth that it even works to lie. And so what would happen if everybody lied? It wouldn't work. So when he's saying will your actions such that you could will to be a universal maxim that everybody should act this way, it wouldn't even work. No, not everyone could lie because lying only works in a context of truth telling. Makes sense. Yeah. So then people move on from some of those those questions a little bit and they're still addressing them and they're saying, okay, well, in in what world does it does a justification for God make sense when you have this context of evil all around and you've got these philosophers that are still thinking about this today and through the twentieth century and so forth. And so this guy comes along and he writes one of the definitive books on this, um I think it's actually called The Problem of Good, not The Problem of Evil. John Hick, did you read that one? No. I, th- I think it's called The Problem of Good. Um, and, and basically what he does is he categorizes everyone into either Augustinians in terms of their theodicy or Irenaeans. And that's referring back to the second century St. Irenaeus. And Who well, we come Irena- closer to I, I think as, so. as Latter-day Saints. Yeah, yeah. And it is Irenaeus that's closer to LDS theology because it relies upon this idea of the soul-making theodicy. In other words, all this stuff is is good for us. So it's good for us to go through suffering. This is what Eve says in the garden, right? It's better for us to pass through sorrow that we may know the good from the evil. So in order to get back to the garden or even just to really have an understanding of what's best for us, we have to go through this soul-making exercise of sorrow, suffering, and evil. And so those are kind of the two main categories that Hick establishes in the context of his book. Can I just throw something in rather to keep us humble? (laughs) We said we we, we we weren't going to come up with answers here. We're just raising questions. I, I just thought it's interesting to note that Irenaeus is the one who was concerned about who's orthodox and who's not orthodox. He was a heresiologist. So he actually wrote on heresy, and that's that's a subject of, of deep interest to me is the construction of orthodoxy and heresy, and so I've learned a little bit about him, and to think that this guy who is giving us this answer is someone who is concerned with who has the right answer and who has the wrong answer, and so here we go again with the duality, just to remind us, right, that we're dealing with duality in all right. things until we get off it, right, until we come out of it. Yeah, so... To continue that, that's a great sidebar. I love that. Uh, Irenaeus, I mean, you could say he was way ahead of his time because he certainly answered some of the questions that Augustine poses 
and some of the problems that he creates with his theodicy. Um, and, and it's a framework that many Christians still use today is the Irenaean framework of theodicy, that all these things count for our good, that in the end, that this all adds up. But then the challenge to that might be, well, isn't there some part of this that God could take out? I mean, he is all powerful. Could he just get rid of, you know, violent rape and just leave all the other stuff? But let's let's just take that part out, right? Is right. it necessary to have every level le- level of suffering represented? I mean, let's just take out suffering children, right? Let, let's go after the adults, but leave the children alone. Yeah, this goes into a question that. Alan Watts raises in his book, Just So, which is, what kind of world would you create? If you were God, what would you change, Riley? Boy, that's so ahead of me. (laughs) You've kind of already given us some answers, right? Well, then again, have you? Do you really take those seriously as possibilities? No, I'm just representing the ideas that have been thrown out there. I I can't say I ascribe to them. Yeah. Yeah, because you realize as soon as someone asks you, if I were God, how would I have created the world? It's just kind of humbling, right? It's just kind of humbling to think, okay, so now I'm going to, I've been critiquing the way things are. I've been saying things are bad or evil. How would I do it differently? Uh... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just ask yourself the question again, if God is all powerful, why didn't he just take out Hitler? Just take out Hitler, you know, leave whatever else, but just take out Hitler. And he certainly has the power to do that if you're that believer in omnipotence. But in his... There are some ugly answers to that question. Yeah. We won't go yeah. into those. See, again, that's this idea that somebody's bad, somebody's good, or they're evil, we're not, he is. And that's that's how it goes. That's how these oh, things Oh, come go. on. We can all agree Hitler's evil, right? Well, so here's the thing. You know, I've, I, I don't want to say, no, I don't agree Hitler's uh, evil. I, I just want to say with Thich Nhat Hanh that there's Hitler in me. And there's Hitler in you. And there, there's no Hitler without me, and there's no me without Hitler. Just like when I look at a piece of paper, it has sun in it, it has water in it. That's the, There's no paper without sun, without water. There's a tree in the piece of paper, in some sense. And so there's Hitler in me. And I, I know that for you and I, we've both uh, followed a little bit the work of Jordan Peterson. His whole reason for getting into his work as a psychologist as a Jungian psychologist, is how do I avoid becoming evil like Hitler? Because he realizes that potential is in me, that shadow self is there, and I have to be able to embrace that, not to reject it, right? Just like when, when, we, when we talk about taming our desires, we don't want to get rid of them. Or, or, or when you talk about when you go into an Eastern uh, religious setting and you talk about getting rid of the ego, you can't get rid of your ego. That's ego telling you that you can get rid of your ego. That's the ultimate ego trip, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and Hitler, like you say, he, if he's that manifestation of our own potentiality, by you said embrace, by embracing what we're really saying is we're acknowledging that it's there, that the potential, that the potentiality for us to have that same nature be revealed in us, it's, it's there. Yeah, maybe embrace was the wrong word to use. Thanks for helping me with that, Riley. I think, you know, what we want to do and, and how Jung would put it is to integrate that shadow self. Right. Not to reject it, not to push it away. You can't, if, if I want to, I want to temper my desires. I can't get rid of them. 
to have you know a sexual desire is natural and without it i don't i'm not attracted and marry and procreate and that's all part of the plan right but i do have to temper that desire it has its proper its proper place and its proper dimension and the same goes for i've got to eat but i don't have to be a glutton so it's not get rid of my desires it's not that i'm going to starve myself i'm just going to temper my desires such that i eat to live, not live to eat, for example. Well, in order to make those kind of decisions, is it is it necessary that we have all the examples before us, the full spectrum represented, from the glutton all the way down to the ascetic, so that we can visualize for ourselves and really understand the the evil, for instance, of gluttony, as opposed to the virtue of maybe not asceticism, but let's say being um what's the word moderate moderate moderation yeah so does that answer some of and again we're not going for answers here but this is just a thought does this really good question riley yeah does this help to illustrate for us the need or the importance of evil in the world yeah so it seems if i could rephrase the question you know it's like saying are you is this why we have this idea that we have to know good and evil, right? But to, but to, to really understand what is good, we have to know, which we can say in the terms we've been speaking here, which are really Aristotelian terms, that the, that the good is this, this golden mean, right? This, this moderation. Then to understand what that is, we have to see it in terms of a vice of deficiency and a vice of excess, Right on the one hand, deficiency; on the other hand, excess. And to find that mean, and is this an objective reality, or is this the fallen state? And is this useful? Because if it is the fallen state, do we have to see it as negative? Isn't it? Isn't this something necessary for us to understand? And and yet it's confusing. It's because why, if the goal is to be in unity, why the duality? And I don't think we've touched on this yet, Riley. Pre-show, we talked about this a little bit in terms of a fish in water. If we are in the presence of, if we are in unity with God, and that's all we know, then we're like a fish in water, and we don't really know it. A fish is not aware of water, right? This is how we talk about it, at least. I don't actually know what fish are aware of or not aware of. But this metaphor tells us we can't really know the good unless we know the evil. And that's at least the story. That's the story of the, of the garden myth. So that's, I think that's a great way to frame it. And maybe the, one of the big dangers of duality is that we frame these things as pairs of opposite rather than a whole scale or spectrum of values, you know, and, and by, by seeing things only as black and white, we're ignoring the whole middle. And maybe unity is seeing the whole spectrum as one and finding your golden mean within that spectrum of experience or awareness. The one is all of the spectrum, all of the spectra. It's a recognition that there is, that there really is only one thing, that that here's the illusion of the fall. The illusion of the fall is that you can be separate from God, that you are somehow separate from God. And this is something that if you are experiencing that, that's a reality. I don't deny that, but that's an epistemological reality. 
it's not a metaphysical reality because metaphysically you are what you are and the unity that is ultimate reality always is, whether you're aware of it or not, whether you've gone through the fall, whether you're in duality and you're thinking in your epistemology, that metaphysical reality remains. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I love that, uh, Chris. That's a great way to put it, that objective reality is always there. And despite what our subjective experience is, it still exists. So nevertheless, the person who is on that spectrum and is experiencing either deficiency or excess and is in a state of not being very comfortable about it, that's still real for them. Indeed. And there's still there's still a value. That's the thing is if we get out of these, it would be it would be another trap of duality to say that it would be a contradiction to say that it wouldn't be useful to to work toward moderating our desires. Right? It, it is useful. And that's not a contradiction. Again, we don't have to fall for that trap of duality. Of course I'm going to work on moderating my desires. That's going to be that's going to bring me in touch with ultimate reality because it's not over there in the one extreme and it's not over there in the other extreme. If I'm at either extreme, I, I'm not touching the whole of reality, right? I think I think there's a way in which we can say at least this is an image I'd like to uh, a picture I'd like to paint that gives you a sense that if you are in the middle, that if you found moder- a, a moderate position, that you are touching both extremes, in some sense. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, or perhaps you you can at least see them. You can at least there's an awareness with your peripheral right. vision. Metaphorically speaking, you can at least see that far out, whereas if you're on one side, maybe you can't see all the way to the other side. All the way. That's a good way to look at it, too. Again, all of these are metaphors. It's the only way we can discuss this. Yeah, we're talking around things that we can't really put into words. And yet, it's worth trying. Once again, it's worth trying. It's worth having the conversation. It's worth raising the questions and thinking about how to answer them and remembering that to stay humble, right? To realize that, because here's the thing, once you have the answer, now you fall into what? What would you say, Riley? I, I think you fall into the trap of thinking there's nothing beyond that. And and here's a great example of this. And I love that you brought this up. One thing I absolutely adore about reading the the writings of Joseph Smith, his thoughts and the revelations that he received is I, I don't recognize in that the, the limits we've placed upon it. So for instance, you've got this soteriological question of the plan of salvation, which incorporates itself directly into this discussion about good and evil. So you've got the plan of salvation and the way that that's been communicated to us through doctrine and covenants is that you've got telestial, terrestrial, in celestial kingdoms, and within the celestial kingdom, there's three degrees within that. And then you've got outer darkness, and it's this beautiful little model or diorama or whatever, and everything works perfectly. What that was for me in reading Joseph Smith and really understanding where that came from, the ideas behind that, is that he's exploring. 
he's having this discussion. Like you said, there's value in the discussion of trying to work through this stuff logically or with the spirit or spiritually and trying to come to a greater understanding of what does this all mean? Why is there evil in the world? Why why did God put us in this place to experience it? What is the purpose? And how do we act in respect to it? So all this stuff has value in in discussion and development. And I think that's what Joseph Smith's doing in almost every case is he's placing himself out there as an example of someone who investigates and is curious. And as a result, he he receives revelations that for, for him and for us reveal some sort of truth about the nature of things. And so I don't take the plan of salvation as mapped out on a chalkboard in an LDS Sunday school with three circles in a line and then three additional circles in the last circle. I don't take that as the end all. Because I think there's there's more. There's mystery and there's a whole lot more out there for us to understand and discover. But it's a great starting point. Well, Riley, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about here, we, we've sort of danced around it a little bit. If we could, you know, if we could just talk a little bit about the reality of evil, whether there really is a reality uh, that's evil, that's something that there are different ways to think about, right? And then maybe after that, we can talk about what to do with the answer we come up with. Yeah, <laughs> or, re- so or, or regardless take... of the answer we come up with, what do we do? Yeah. Let's just take the most extreme examples. I mean, we brought up Hitler earlier and, you know, you've got Mao or you've got just people who have inflicted great harm on the human family and some of them willfully. And maybe that's, you know, up for debate. But nevertheless, you take these extreme examples, Charles Manson, you know, and you say, okay, is that evil personified? Is that the... Is that anthropomorphized evil? And if so, evil exists, right? Can you say that? I don't know, Riley. I, I don't I don't doubt that there is something like those men who's you know who I've actually studied. I just don't know that I would call them evil or personified or anthropomorphized. And I don't know that I just don't know that that's useful. I think we have actually touched on this issue a little bit when I mentioned the idea that that there's a part of me that's like Hitler, right? That that, that that potential is in all of us. Because if it weren't, if that potential weren't in a human being, which I am, then it wouldn't be in him either. Or if it is in him, it is in me. Do you see what I mean? It's like if I can take Erasmus's words and say, I am hu- human, nothing human is alien to me. Was that Erasmus? Is it, that's there's, that's a, a quote, put it that way, right? I am human, nothing human is alien to me whether Erasmus said it or not, somebody said it. And so that's a part of who I am. And m- one of my favorite Buddhist uh, monks, Thich Nhat Hanh, is, is always dealing with this, this question of, because we want to, we see this great evil in the, in the other. And this, this in itself can be a problem, right? Because we're otherizing what I've, sa- what I've just said is actually a part of ourselves, right? So, to, to come to a, a non-dual way of thinking about this, maybe, it may be something like this. It may be realizing that there isn't them without me, and there isn't me without them, or that there isn't me without that, or that without me. And that I may even be complicit somehow in some of the greatest evils in the world without even realizing it. And to take on that possibility, 
that to consider that possibility can be huge. Right? Well, if I, I thought about, I, I spent about twenty minutes of a Sunday school lesson a, a month or so ago trying to convince gently the participants that we would have all been Nazis if we lived during the time of Hitler and, you know, when he had uh, huge approval and all that stuff, I'm like, by not acknowledging your potential for this, you're essentially creating more Hitlers. Um, you've got to recognize it and have the awareness of who he is, metaphorically, not necessarily Hitler per se, but what he is in yourself and others around you so that when it's when it's there and you're confronted with it you can choose to make a decision about how you how you're going to act or react to to that but by ignoring it you you give it free reign i'm assuming you mean we would have been nazis if we were germans right yeah 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 and if the majority you were in that sure. place yeah right yeah so and it's interesting to note by the way historically speaking that there were plenty of Nazi Latter-day Saints. Yeah. That just further proves the point, right? That despite all of our theology and the, the great things that we believe and all this that we've been taught from our baptism on and, or earlier, despite all that stuff, we still have this human nature that intersects with that experience that, you know, it overlaps, I should say, with Hitler's experience. We have that same nature, whether we want to ad admit it or not. And by ignoring it, it it gives it it gives the next Hitler the opportunity to just steamroll through. And there were many more uh, Nazis who are Christians. There are fewer Latter Day Saints than there are other Christians. So there are plenty of Christian supporters. And then people like Hubner or the the young men and women of the with the white rose movement are actually exceptions to the rule and perhaps we'd like to think that we would be those exceptions but statistically speaking we'd be nazis right and it very well could be since the majority of people say oh i would have been on the right i i i never would have been for you know the nazis or whatever well the people who on the other side of the argument say, I, I probably would have been there and I need, I need to work on that and acknowledge it and then recognize it when I'm confronted with it. That's probably the Hubners that, that saw that in themselves and they're like, I don't like that part of myself. I've got to do something about that. So what do we do about it? That's the question. I mean, if it's there for a purpose, and we're not acting upon it, we're not doing something about it, then it's wasted. And that'd be a shame because suffering sucks. Seems to live like we to try to, to make it, something out of it. Absolutely. You, you remind me of a favorite quote of mine. It's from, it was on my mother's refrigerator. It's from, it's from Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl's philosophy was to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. So here we are making meaning in this experience, this human experience, out of the suffering that comes from the belief that something is wrong. Because I'm suggesting the possibility and saying that, that nothing's wrong. 
and that there's a way of seeing all of reality such that nothing's wrong, such that it turns out that whatever you thought was bad or wrong isn't. And I think at this point, I have to tell the Chinese farmer story, Riley. It's something that I just want to interject real quick. I mean, Frankel's book was built around the premise that we are meaning making machines. I don't necessarily think he takes a stance on whether that's the best way to go about life. It's just the nature of who we are. We're meaning making machines. We try to pull meaning out of all kinds of symbols. And essentially, I think what you're getting at there is he says that, you know, if if we're going to have these things, the suffering, let's make it meaningful. Let's do something about it. Absolutely. That is the message of Frankl's book. And so here we are in this human experience making meaning out of our suffering when we could be seeing that which is bad or wrong or evil as just part of of reality and not suffer. So the Buddha teaches us that pain is inevitable. That's a part of life. But the suffering is optional because suffering doesn't come from pain. Suffering comes from an attachment, for example, to the idea that I shouldn't be experiencing pain or that things shouldn't be the way that they are, that if we let go, letting go is is always the answer in Buddhism, that if we let go of our attachment to things should be the way we say they should be and we just be with what is, then we don't suffer anymore. So this is where the Chinese farmer story that I've told before comes into play, right? I think I have to tell it again in this episode, and that is the story of the Chinese farmer farmer whose horse runs away, and his neighbors all come and commiserate with him, and they say, well, I say they commiserate with him. They come and say to him, that's terrible. Your horse ran away. And he says, maybe. And the next day, his horse comes back and brings multiple wild horses with it. And they come and say, oh, this is great. Your, your horse came back and you have all these other horses now. And he says, maybe. And the next day his son tries to break one of the wild horses, falls and breaks his leg instead. And they come and say, it's terrible. Your son's broken his leg. It's just so unfortunate. He says, maybe. And then they come the next day to conscript all able-bodied young men to go off and fight and die in the war. And the Chinese farmer's son cannot go because he's not able to body. And they say, oh, this is wonderful. This is so great. Your son didn't have to go. And he says, maybe. And so it just shows us this story that, that what we think is bad or wrong or evil may not be. Rather, we might choose to let go of our attachments and see the good in it all. We may see with God that it is all good. And we may recognize that all these things work together for our good because they are good, because they're part of God's creation. And maybe there's no reason to pin a problem of evil on God. Maybe nothing's wrong. That's another possibility. Is there a possibility that good is just a synonym for necessary? Is, is bad any less necessary? If we're in duality, then there's both sides to consider, right? I think that's a good place to bring in Lehi's thoughts on theodicy. This is from 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11, For it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. And I think that's interesting. As just a side note, he doesn't say, For it must needs be that there is evil, or it must needs be that there is good. He talks about the opposition as if it's a single thing. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, 
neither holiness nor misery, neither good nor bad. And I think that's self-evident. If you've been to the temple and you understand, or you've heard Eve talk about this or Adam talk about this, you know, there can be no good without evil, virtue without vice, and so forth. They are a pair of opposites that, that without each other cease to have any meaning. So the point is to is to conjoin these opposites. That's how we get out of duality back into unity. Is just to to understand the point here. The the point of this exercise of the fall is to understand. Is to know good and evil. So if I can see here's the one side, here's the other side, and bring those pairs of opposites. If I can recognize the pairs of opposites and bring them back into unity, then I can bring myself out of duality and back into unity as well. With that. And so he addresses that exact point. He says, wherefore, all things must needs be. I think that's another clause that means necessary. All things must needs be a compound in one. What an interesting turn of phrase. I don't know that you find that phrase anywhere else in all of Scripture, a compound in one. I could be mistaken, but I, I doubt it. Wherefore, if it should be one body, it must needs remain, remain as dead, having no life, neither death, nor corruption, nor incorruption, happiness, nor misery, neither sense, nor insensibility. Wherefore, it must needs have been created for a thing of naught. Wherefore, there would have been no purpose or meaning in the end of its creation. Wherefore, this thing must needs destroy the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes, and also the power and the mercy and the justice of God. You know, like a, there's two ways to, to understand that. Essentially saying that the entrance of duality into the world is what gives us the potential for salvation. Um, because we, the, the traditional way of understanding it, we learn from the sufferings and the afflictions and all that stuff and, and grow and develop as a result. The other way to look at it is from your perspective, Chris, where you talked about the acknowledgement and awareness of both sides of the spectrum. And until you have that awareness of both sides and you're able to see them, see them both as necessary and as unified in one, then you can't return to the garden and partake of the tree of life. I think it was a pre-show where we talked about this tree of life idea a little bit about you partake of knowledge of good and evil, that equals death. You bring them back together and you have the potential to partake of the tree of life at that point. But as long as you're in this life of duality and you partake of the tree of life, you live forever in your sin. Well, what's that sin? It's just remaining in duality. Right, because repentance, as defined in the LDS Bible Dictionary, is seeing things in a new way, seeing things as they are. If we're seeing things in duality, and that's not ultimate reality, that's sin. We're missing the mark, right? Sin, again, is this this Greek archery term of missing the mark. We're not seeing things as they are. And so our goal is to return to the garden. It's the cherubim and the flaming sword are not there to stop us. We need to get back into the garden. We need to actually partake of the fruit of the tree of life. But we have to be able to conjoin the pairs of opposites. We have to be able to check our dualism at the threshold to get past those threshold guardians. So it's not the tree of life that God forbids us to partake of. He actually says it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil that brings death into the world. That's the one you shouldn't partake of. But 
even when they're in the garden, they can eat of the tree of life. When they come out of the garden, they can eat of the tree of life. At any moment, we can go back to it. But the qualifier is that if we come back to it and partake of the tree of life, we'll live forever in our sins if we haven't fully learned the lesson that comes from eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Like yes. If you go straight from knowledge of good and evil over to the tree of life and partake, you live forever in your sin. If you go to the tree of knowledge of good and evil and partake and then go through this life of experience to understand that they're really just the same spectrum, that they're parts of the same spectrum, and you incorporate or integrate all of that into your experience and your identity and who you are, and then come back, partake of the tree of life, the sin is gone. Yes. That's it. That's an answer. It's an answer. It's an answer, yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything more to add? I can't think of anything to add to that. Yeah, I don't think we're solving the the great conundrum for a lot of people because they're still going to be confronted with this in in a daily. We said we weren't going to solve it, right? And I'm I'm emphasizing that. I'm okay. definitely emphasizing that. We're not here to do that. But if we can help to point people through that experience, then I think we will we will have accomplished something. And and that is that all of these things are necessary for our growth and. That doesn't mean it's fair or enjoyable that suffering will be any less for having that realization necessarily. But it is what it is, and you're but right where you is. need to be. It offers You're some right hope. where you need to be, and you know that because it's where you are. Well, I'll just say how grateful I am for a God that has his ways that are different than mine, and... I'm okay with that. I, I don't I don't necessarily understand it, but I just trust it and I have hope that, that things will work out, that he has that he does have a plan for us. And uh I don't again, I don't pretend to understand all the parts of that plan. I love the hints that have been given to us throughout time by prophets, apostles, uh, or even in the words of Jesus himself, um, that help me to understand it better. And perhaps, you know, with age you can handle the the inherent parts of life that are that are tricky and difficult maybe a little bit better with some perspective but that's that's the best i can hope for and i'm okay with that well thank you for being with us this week thank you riley for being with me for latter-day contemplation i'm christopher Hurtado, and i'm riley Ristler.